My friends, welcome to Portraits of Jesus, Ash Lane United Methodist Church's Lenten Bible Study. My name is Lee Trigg. I'm very blessed to be part of this Lenten journey with you as we delve into the four Gospels in the New Testament and specifically examine the rather unique picture that each of the gospel writers paints of Jesus uh, with different motivations to different audiences in different contexts. Uh, so again, I'm very, uh, very blessed to be on this journey with you. And uh, today we are going to continue uh, with our discussion uh, of the gospel of Matthew. Um, um. We began last week talking about uh, the Gospel of Matthew uh, and how Matthew <clears throat> uh, how Matthew portrays Jesus. And just by way of review, uh, if you remember, we, uh, we we talked about the fact that that Matthew is very much geared toward a Jewish audience. Hey, Carol. Um, that Matthew is very much geared toward a, a Jewish audience uh, speaking to Jewish issues uh, and and trying to put uh, trying to put Jesus in a in a Jewish context, if you will. Um, and and I say that it's maybe not quite as obvious in the Gospels, but if you think about uh, if you think about when we read Paul's letters, right? Um, and if you if you if you read Paul's letters chronologically. Uh, so not in the order that they're in in the Bible, but if you read them by you know what we think are the uh, where, uh, the the various dates they were written. So you begin with First Thessalonians, um, and you end you know probably somewhere with Romans or or maybe the uh, maybe Ephesians, depending on uh, what you think about the authorship. But if you read the letters chronologically, you what you see is is Paul uh, Paul's theology, Paul's thinking, really evolves. Um, it, it changes over the course of, of his ministry. Um, and by that, I mean, when we, when we, if you start with first Thessalonians, which is the, the earliest of Paul's letters that we have, um, Paul at that point in his ministry, um, is, is struggling to, to fit Jesus into his Jewish context, right? Um, we think of Paul's conversion, on the road to Damascus, and we think about it as a conversion. It really was not. It, it was not this neat little conversion that we we sort of picture. Um, yes, Paul experiences the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, and yes, it changes him, but it doesn't change him completely. Paul is still, and for most of his life, is still first and foremost a Jew. Um, and if you think about the, when he writes to the Philippians and he describes his former life, right, he holds himself up, not just as a, as a Jew, but as the model Jew. Um, and he, he goes through and he talks about, if you'll remember, he talks about, you know, I was, I was born of the, of the, of the right parents and I, I, I studied at the right schools and, and I, I, I had the right mentors. We went to the, you know, we went to the good church, if you will. Um, and, and he, he holds himself up and he says, look, he says in, in terms of the, in terms of, of, of Judaism, I was, uh, I was a Pharisee and in terms of zeal for the law, Basically, I there was nobody better. There was no one better than me at following the law, um, and and so he's first and foremost he's a Jew, and into his Jewish context, into what it means to be a Jew, Paul then starts trying to fit Jesus into that into that context, um, and and I think the same is the same can be said for. Um, for the Jews in uh, the Jewish Christians in Matthew's congregations that he's writing to, right? So they are, they're trying to, they're trying to figure out, they, they've come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but now we have to figure out, well, what does that mean in terms of my day-to-day -day practice of, of following God? Um, and so there's that, there's that inherent struggle there. And, and you really see, I think, that struggle in, in Matthew more than anywhere else because he's writing from such a Jewish context. And so kind of keep that in mind as we're, as we're going along, that, um, that it's not simply a matter of convincing his audience that Jesus, is the, that Jesus was the Messiah, um, that the Messiah has come, the Messianic age, if you will, is, is unfolding, but also the, the notion of trying to instruct, trying to teach them how to, how to fit Jesus uh, and Jesus's message 
into uh, into that Jewish context. And we're going to get to that when, in a few minutes when we get to the when we uh, touch down in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I think you'll really see uh, you can kind of really see uh, how that how that begins to take shape. So, but at the beginning, I want to and I'm going to share uh, some scripture. I want to spend just a few minutes looking at the what we talked briefly about last week, and that is the the genealogy that Matthew begins with. We talked a little further down into Matthew 1 last week and, and talked about the the actual um, Matthew's actual story uh, of the events surrounding Jesus's birth. But before he gets there, he begins his gospel. He, he jumps into this story by uh, by showing an account, as he said, uh, an account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Um, and so he begins what for most of us is a, in, a, in a very dry, uh, very unengaging way uh, by, by, you know, basically taking a little surf through Ancestry.com to say, this is, this is who begat whom, uh, and this is how Jesus came to be. Now, in 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 broad terms, it's it's obvious what Matthew's doing. He's he's trying to make the case to trace Jesus's lineage, um, not just back to King David, but indeed all the way back to Abraham. Um, and and why does he go all the way back to Abraham? Because Abraham is where it all started, right? Prior to Abraham, there was no. Jewish people per se. Uh, it is when God calls to Abraham, God decides, you know what, I can, I, I can work with this guy here. I can, I can work through him. And, and so God calls to Abraham and, and basically, uh, you know, basically un, uh, uh, unrolls the very first covenant, the old covenant, you might say. Um, and, and the covenant is essentially, I will be your God. You and your descendants will be my people. I am going to bless you, and because I have blessed you, you are going to be a blessing to the world. And that's the that's the covenant. I'm your God. You're my people. I'm blessing you. You'll be a blessing to to, to everyone else. And that's the nucleus of of you know what it meant to them to be God's chosen people. So that's where that's where the 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 first kernel of Judaism begins. Uh, is is with with Abraham, and that's back in the in the twelfth chapter of of Genesis. And what does that what does that mean? It essentially means that God chose the Jewish people not to be God's favorite, not to be the, uh, God's favored. Because um, I think we can agree that there few uh, few races of people have been kicked around worse through history, uh, throughout history than than the Jews. Um, but rather, God selected them, chose them for a purpose, and the purpose was simply that I'm going to give you uh, I'm going to give you these commandments. I'm going to give you the the structure to to worship me and to be my people, and when the rest of the world sees you doing that faithfully, then the rest of the world will want to be my people as well. And so the Jews were chosen to be the mechanism of redemption for the world. That was the, that was the plan. And it all begins with Abraham. So Matthew likewise begins with Abraham and, and moves through. And as I said last week, the don't, uh, don't, don't get your Bible out and try to, to make all of these connections because some of the, some of the dots don't actually connect. Um, and, and I think I mentioned last week, rather than thinking of this as a genealogy, think of it as a, a family album, if you will, um, a big family photo album. And, Whenever, if you think about the way a photo album, the way it works, when you when you're turning through a photo album, you're looking at pictures. Every time you you know happen upon a picture, it's not just oh look there's Dorothy, but rather you are the picture reminds you of that moment in history, right? So if you happen upon a picture of you and your kids at the beach. 20 years ago, then that picture is going to remind you not just of those are my kids, but the picture is going to remind you of that day. And even though 
um, you know, the 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 sandcastle that that one of the kids made isn't in this picture, your mind will nonetheless resurrect that memory and you will in some ways kind of relive that moment and other moments that are that are um, that are uh, that are kind of in conjunction with it um, or to maybe another example, whenever whenever we put our Christmas tree up every year, it is a day long ordeal. And it is because um, we don't have sets of ornaments. Every ornament on our tree pretty much was bought individually. Um, Melissa and I buy each other an ornament every year. Um, we get each of the kids a new ornament every year. And, and they all have a story, you know, so like there's one ornament on that's on the on the tree that's a key, and I got I gave that to Melissa the year Christmas after we the year we bought our first house together, and so that key is a reminder of that first house that we owned, and so as you can imagine, because each ornament has a story you sort of relive that story with each ornament that you pull out. Oh, I, I remember this one. This is, I gave you this one, you know, that year that we did such and such, or here's the reason why I picked this one for you this year, that year. And so you sort of relive all of those memories as we're putting ornaments on the tree. Uh, and so it takes forever because you're, you're, we're reliving those. And I think Matthew is attempting to do the same thing here. Um, if you, if you look the way it's structured, Matthew separates, the generations uh, into three sets of 14. So three sets of 14 generations. And the first beginning in, in, uh, in verse two begins with Abraham and goes all the way down. Um, let's see. Goes all the way down to verse, uh, I guess, to verse eight with with David. And then the next set starts and goes all the way down to verse 11. Josiah, the father of uh, uh, Jeconiah and brother. And so that takes you all the way down to the, as you see in the end of verse 11, the deportation to Babylon. And then verse 12 starts the third generation our third set of generations. And what it does, if you, if you think about it, it separates very neatly the three major, um, major time periods in Jewish history. There is the time beginning with Abraham going all the way up to King David, which we might say is the, is the pre pre Israel uh, generations. So these are the generations prior to um, the monarchy being established. So this is the time of the judges. If you think of the, the book of Judges, this is the time. These are the times when the when the judges kind of ruled uh, over 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 Israel. It wasn't a, it wasn't a country yet. It wasn't a it wasn't a nation. It was just this kind of you know con, uh, uh, configuration of. Uh, I can't think of the word I'm looking for. Just basically this kind of loosely knit group of people. And then beginning with David, um, and it really began before David, but the way Matthew tells it, he, he uses David as sort of the cutoff. So in David, you have the monarchy. So this is when Israel really becomes a nation, a standalone nation. Um, if you'll recall, the people or the, the people of Israel kind of, you know, had been looking around going, okay, all the people around us, they all have kings, you know, the Canaanites and the Moabites and everybody around us, they have, they have kings, they're a nation. That's what we want to be too. And, and God tried to say, no, that's really not what you want, but they insisted. And so that's when, um, um, when Saul is, is, uh, is anointed and, uh, and then eventually then David becomes king. And, and it's kind of David where the, the Jews, the ancient Jews sort of traced back. That was their heyday, right? That was when things were really, really, really popping. Um, interestingly enough, if you think about it, it's actually a very brief period of time from a historical perspective. Uh, there were only three kings of Israel, Saul, then David, and then David's son Solomon. Um, and, and the whole thing is over in really just a couple of hundred years. 
is is as, as long as as uh, as uh, as Israel uh, as a standalone nation really lasts. Um, and so that those 14 generations in the middle really trace from from David, um, which is um, let's say probably around a thousand BC. Um, we don't we don't know exactly a date for when David became king. What we do know is that Solomon, his son, died in 922 BC. So kind of back that up, you figure around 1000 BC or so, it's probably when David is, is ruling. Um, and so that set, that, that second set of, of, uh, of genealogy takes us from David all the way to 586 BC, which is when the Babylonians invaded and destroyed Jerusalem and took the best and the brightest of the Jews to into exile. So it's what, what we refer to as the exile, the Babylonian exile, or what Matthew refers to as the deportation. And then, and then he jumps ahead and he says, well, after the deportation, and so now we're dealing with the time of exile and the times immediately following exile um, as chronicled in in uh, the Old Testament books of, of Ezra and Nehemiah um, those tell the stories of the Jews return to um, to, uh, to to the to the Holy Land from exile in Babylon um, and so then he traces so the the after the deportation which is in 586 BC traces it all the way then to Jesus's birth um, which we think was probably uh, prior to the, the, the beginning of the first century, probably uh, somewhere, you know, somewhere between say 40 BC and, and, you know, one AD is, is Jesus's birth in there. Probably we think somewhere around 30, uh, maybe 25 BC. And so Matthew then traces this genealogy. Um, and, and as you, as we read it, the way I think the way the Jews would have read it, we don't have the context that they had, but the way the Jews would have read it, each person that is named, you know, you start out with Abraham and then his son Isaac, and then Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah, and so on and so forth. Every person who's mentioned has a story. Every person that is mentioned there is one of those ornaments out of our Christmas stuff, if you will, right? And so each one of those people have a story that their name included in this, uh, in this would bring to mind. And each of their stories are part of the work, the work that God has done on behalf of the Jewish people throughout history. And so it's this, the genealogy is not so much designed to make the case of Jesus's lineage so much as it is to remind them uh, as they begin of what God did prior to Jesus's birth, all the ways that God worked on behalf of the Jewish people, all the ways that God blessed the Jewish people, uh, even and and times that, that, uh, that, that they, they fell short. Um, you see that, uh, um, even mentions in verse, uh, I'm sorry, my, I'm, I'm struggling today. My eyes are not focusing right or something this morning. I'm having a lot of trouble reading. Um, if you notice in verse uh, six and seven, right? David is described, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And that, you know, there really isn't any reason to mention Uriah. Uriah is not at all part of this lineage but Uriah harkens back to the story of David and Bathsheba. And so Uriah's being mentioned there harkens back to that story. We were reminded uh, not just of David's greatness, but also of David's failings, also of David's shortcomings. Not only did he sleep with another man's wife, he essentially had that man killed uh, or arranged for him to be killed uh, in battle so that David didn't have to deal with him. Does that make sense? So let me let me stop there and 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 see if anybody has any thoughts or questions, comments, astute observations. I like 
looking at it from the standpoint of each of those representing an event or a picture to to better describe why that's presented the way it is. I had never approached it that way. And I would I would argue that that's a very <clears throat> it's a very Jewish way of of uh, of introducing uh, a person or an event. If we think about how many times in the Old Testament do we see um, God uh, speaking to a particular person, whether it's Moses or Abraham or, or or whoever, and and more often than not, God begins by reminding whoever He's talking to of the things that God has already done. I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of your ancestors. I am the God who led your ancestors out of slavery in Egypt, right? I am the, you know, I've already done all of these things. And so there, oftentimes the, 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 a new person or a new event is introduced by first reminding them of where they came from uh, and, and God's work uh, on their behalf throughout history. And I think Matthew in a, in a much more expanded way is, is doing the same thing. Any other thoughts? All right, then we're going to jump ahead, kind of keeping all of that in mind, uh, keeping that structure. Um, I want to jump ahead and touch down in, uh, in, in various places in Matthew, mostly Matthew chapter five, uh, which is the, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And for those of you who've been with me for a while, we, we spent some time back in the fall uh, really looking in detail at the Sermon on the Mount and what it, what it says, what it doesn't say, um, and, and trying to kind of make heads or tails, particularly with the Beatitudes. How the, that's how the blessings that Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with. And, but I want to I challenge us to, to sort of look at uh, the Sermon on the Mount through the lens that Matthew begins with and sort of ask the question, what, uh, why, does, why does Matthew include this? Um, and why is it basically unique to Matthew's gospel? Uh, Luke uh, gives us the Sermon on the Plain, but if we go, if we compare the two, you'll find they're very, very different. Um, and, and, uh, and Matthew goes into much more detail. Um, the, the sermon on the plain doesn't contain the beatitudes. Um, it's, it's just, it's almost could be two different events. Um, but Matthew, this is sort of the centerpiece of, of Matthew's gospel. He spends three chapters nearly, uh, with, with Jesus's sermon on the Mount and the, and the, the various, uh, commentary that sort of surrounds it. And, and so I, I, as I have kind of gone back and looked at this and, and really tried to, to try to, to, to put myself under, under Matthew's skin to really figure out what he's trying to communicate, the more I, I began to wonder, you know, we always look at the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus talking to a group of people uh, and, and, but referring to someone else, right? It's like, you know, if I was to sit down with Dwight and say, um, let me tell you who's really blessed. And I, you know, really it's the, it's the poor people out there who are really, really blessed. You know, you and I might not think so, but it is. And let me tell you why, or, or it's, it's not the people who are, who are powerful who have this great job and, and wield all kind of power. They're not the people who are going to, to inherit the kingdom. They're not the people who are going to go to heaven. It's really these people over here who, who really don't have any power. So it, it, I'm not, I don't think I'm saying this very well, but, but we tend to think of the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus talking to a group of people, but talking about someone else. And instead, I wonder if it, if it doesn't make more sense that Jesus is talking to a group of people and talking about that same group. And, and here's the, the reason I say that. And we started out last week, if you'll recall, talking about the inherent tension that that Matthew's community exists in, right? So we've talked about the religious side of it. You know, they are, they are definitely at odds in many respects 
to their Jewish brothers and sisters. And by Jewish, I mean those who are, who are solidly Jewish and who do not accept Jesus as Messiah. Uh, so I'm referring to the Jewish people versus the Jewish Christians, if that makes sense. So we know that there's tension there. There's tension in the synagogue. Um, there's 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 a lot of religious friction um, because part of what it means to be a Jew is that you're anxiously uh, awaiting the coming of the Messiah. And now here's this group of people over here saying, "Well, no, he already came. He's already been here and gone." Um, and so there's you know that can border on blasphemy. And so there's there's tension there, but there's also tension within between the Jewish Christians and the government, the Roman government, um, because uh, Christianity, it's not called that yet, but let's just call it what it is. Christianity um, stands at, at odds in many cases with the Roman imperialist um, theology, a theology that claimed that the Roman God uh, Jupiter chose Rome to be the, the physical manifestation of the God's will and blessing on earth. So they considered themselves um, basically ordained by the gods to exist, to rule. And Matthew comes along, uh, or Jesus comes along rather, and Matthew in telling his story um, basically condemns this and stands at odds with this and, and basically um, declares a very subversive alternative to the purpose of, to God's purposes through Israel and now through Jesus. Um, and so suddenly you have, you have this group of people who believe that, that as, as, as Jews, that they were ordained by God to, again, to be the mechanism of redemption and Jesus through Jesus, they are called to stand at odds uh, and declare uh, that, that, you know, Roman God, Jupiter didn't, didn't ordain Rome to do anything because in fact, there is only one God and it is the God of Israel. Um, and so not just from a political standpoint, but from a, from a uh, kind of from a, a religious and, 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 or theocracy standpoint, they are, Matthew's message is very much at odds with, um, uh, uh, with the Roman government. Um, the Jews were already, uh, the, the kind of the pariah of the Roman government. Um, we know that in, you know, even in, in, in Jesus's time and prior to that, um, no, they weren't imprisoned, but, um, being a, being a Jew was, was not, uh, they were not considered very high on the food chain. And in fact, they were oppressed in many, many ways. Um, life was hard for them because they were sort of seen as second-class citizens uh, that Rome tolerated, but really would have been just as happy if they'd have gone away. And so what if, you know, we look at, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is a the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. What if instead of Jesus uh, talking about some random groups of people, what if he's talking to them? What if he's talking to a group of, of Jews who are living a hard life, who are living in the midst of oppression, who don't always know where their next meal is going to come from, who are poor, who are, who are you know, battered and bruised and, and, and abused and have been throughout history. What if instead of, of Jesus preaching a sermon about how we deal with other people, what if we view this as almost like a pep talk? that, you know, yes, life is hard. Yes, you're struggling. Yes, it's not right. But you were blessed nonetheless. You don't even realize how blessed you are, but you're blessed. And in some ways, you're blessed for the very reasons, or the very things that, that you're decrying. Would that, would that change how you, how you read that? Definitely. In, in verse eleven. Verse eleven. Uh, yeah, I mean, he he is talking to them, and and um, 
says you. And uh, it makes me think that all along he's been addressing them as as opposed to talking about somebody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hadn't really paid attention to that till you said it, but it makes sense. Well, I'll be. I had never. I'd never read it that way either. It's, it was really in preparing for this that after really digging into sort of the all the the Jewish context and everything that I, I read the I read it again and I'm like it it actually makes a whole lot more sense to me what he's saying makes a whole lot more sense if he's talking to them and about them mm-hmm. versus just you know telling well it's okay to be poor whatever you know um and and the more I kind of the more I dug into it the more the more sense it made to me yeah. I agree any other thoughts? Yeah, this is Carol. Hey, Carol. Uh, assuming that the transfer of pronouns, you know, like is the same in the original versus this, because all of, the first part is all they, there. It's kind of like those guys over there. And then it suddenly switches, like you said, in um, verse 11 to you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so. Carol, you may want to say again, you, you kind of cut out. Sorry, I'm far away. Uh, oops, it says we're unstable. <laughs> oh, well, we knew that. Um, it's like he's up here and they're listening and they're having a nice Sunday in the park. And then all of a sudden it's, you know, gets personal. And then he goes on and the salt and light is all, you know, directly you 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 so it's like he switches tones to yeah, wake and, them up in the middle and i don't i i can't i can't answer that carol because i i'm not a i'm not a linguist by any stretch of the imagination i know that in hebrew the i'm trying to remember the pronouns are implied but they don't actually have pronouns in hebrew I think I think that's right. Greek, I don't know. Um, again, I'm just I'm not a I'm not a student of language. I I, uh, I speak enough Spanish probably to get myself arrested, and that'd be about it. Uh, <laughs> a true story. So when uh, when uh, first time Melissa and I went to Mexico, it was not long after we were married. It's kind of our delayed honeymoon, and we were <coughs> on the island of Cozumel. And we went into town one day, they had like a little, like a, like an outdoor market where you could actually go and barter and and everything. And, uh, and Melissa found a, a, like a lace table runner that she really, really wanted. And, uh, so we start, uh, we start bartering and I'm, I'm insisting that I'm going to speak Spanish, right? Melissa doesn't speak Spanish. And as it turned out, we were actually bidding against each other. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and all the guy, the guy just kind of sat back and watched us. He's like, I don't, I don't have to do any work here. <laughs> you know? Once you guys get tired of swinging at each other, then I'll, I'll get my money. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, so I don't, I'll, I'll, I'll look into the issue with the pronouns, Carol. I'm just, I, I'm not sure, but I, I know a couple people who, who definitely are linguists and I, I may reach out to them and, and see what their, what their thoughts are. It would be it would be interesting. It, definitely in the way it's written in this version in English, there's that pronoun slide. Well, actually, the the Japanese version. I was about to ask you. Yeah, yeah, she's got it. Excellent, excellent. It's the same. It it, it does is. the same thing. It's talking about the people, the people who are sad, and the people who are this, and then gets personal on at verse 11 is when you are um persecuted and do you know no 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 this the, the japanese is translated from the original okay not from, oh, the, from the greek okay that's mm-hmm. that was going to be my question too carol um okay <laughs> We're so picky. Does Peter have a different? Uh, uh, P- Peter, do you have a Chinese Bible? 
Uh, I I do have one. I I can't read that much Chinese. Sorry. Uh, okay. <laughs> That's all right. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um. Anyway, so then when we get down to uh, just kind of wrap this up, when we get down to verse seventeen. Um, that's when, uh, that's when I think we go from, from, uh, sort of alluding to the Jewish context to really seeing, uh, seeing Matthew fully embrace it. Um, because it really kind of gets to the, to the crux of the, of the religious tension where Jesus says, do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Uh, and if you think about it, that's that's what created most of the friction between Jesus and the religious authorities uh, is is their uh, their accusation, essentially, that Jesus was encouraging people um, not to follow the law. You know, whenever whenever, you know, uh, you know, whenever they would have debates over over the proper uh, uh, proper uh, uh, observance of the Sabbath. Or the Pharisee saying, "I can't believe that you have your you have your guys out there picking grain, and here it is the Sabbath, and it doesn't matter how hungry they are; it's the Sabbath." Um, or the times when when uh, when you know the the authorities would come and they would question Jesus, they would test him. You know, well, you know, Moses said. Uh, that it was okay to to get to divorce your wife. You could give your you know your person a certificate of divorce. Um, what do you say? Is that okay? Is it okay to for a man to divorce his wife, uh, or or no? And so they're constantly sort of picking at him, trying to trying to trip him up to say essentially to say that the law doesn't matter. And here Jesus says quite plainly, "I didn't come to to." Uh, uh, I didn't come to tell you that that the law is not important. What I'm telling you is that there's there's a there, you know there's a theology, there's a reason, there's a there's a spirit behind the law. There's a reason why the law exists. Um, and if all you're doing is is trying to follow the law without understanding the spirit behind it, then then the law really is meaningless to you. It's just something is something else to do. And, and, and then, so then in, in verse 21, uh, we get into, he gets into what I refer to as the intensifications um, where he says, you've heard it said, but here's what I say. And, and we can really see there kind of where he's, where he's coming from in terms of how he views the law. You know, the law says you shall not murder. But really, he says, let's let's talk about murder. Let's talk about murder as a sin. Is that where the sin begins is when someone kills someone? And he says, no, that's not where that's the effect. The sin begins whenever whenever you you lose your temper. The sin begins when you enable you allow yourself to become enraged and so on. Or he talks about um, in. um, oh yeah, and down here in 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 twenty seven, and I just preached on this uh, just last last Sunday. You know, he says the law says you shouldn't commit adultery, but but he says the 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 sin isn't about adultery. Adultery is the is what the sin ultimately yields. The sin begins, he says, when you when you look at a woman other than your wife with lust in your heart. That's where the sin begins. And, and the, the, the adultery is just, a, is, is just the result of that sin. Um, but if you really want to get to what the law, the reason why the law says you shouldn't commit adultery, the reason is because that is the manifestation of that sin of lust. Um, and he, he, and so he, he really kind of gets to, and I think the reason Matthew includes that, uh, is he really gets to what, what makes Jesus tick from a theological standpoint and what Jesus really means, because he says it in various places that I didn't come to abolish. I came to fulfill, or I came to, uh, uh, basically live out the law and the prophets. And here we really see what he means by that. And, and what he really is calling his followers to do, which is not to turn their back on the law, um, but to live into the spirit of the law, not just live by the letter of it.
So once again, a very, uh, a very Jewish approach uh, to, to explaining who Jesus is and, and, and ultimately what he's calling his followers to do. And note that as, we, as we've gone through here, not once has Matthew talked about belief. Um, this isn't about believing in Jesus. It's about believing who he is um, and what he's calling us to do. But much like Mark, Matthew is very action-oriented. Um, you know, it's not, just, it's not enough to believe in Jesus. Jesus is calling you to something. And so, you know, I'm going to give you all this information. I'm going to tell you the story. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to do it in a context that, that speaks to you. But at the end of the day, you have a decision to make. And the decision is not whether to believe in him. The decision is whether to follow him, um, as opposed to, and we'll, we'll get to him in a couple of weeks, as opposed to John's gospel, which is all about belief, right? Um, you know, whosoever believes in me, um, you know, John three sixteen, you know, God gave his only son so that whosoever believes in him will not die, but will have eternal life. Um, or John 14, and Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through me. So, thoughts? All right, then the one, the one last stop uh, we want to make just briefly, um, uh, again, just kind of to, to draw your attention, um, is, is Matthew 27. We're at the very end of the story here. Uh, it's the story of, of Jesus' death. So as we pick up in verse 45 uh, here, Jesus is already crucified. He's already on the cross, uh, and, and Matthew is telling the story essentially of Jesus' death. Um, and so he says it's about three o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, Jesus cries out in, in that voice and, and, and speaks those words that, that, um, that we, most of us are familiar with. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, which bothers a lot of people. Uh, they, they, they feel as though Jesus has, uh, is having a kind of a crisis of faith at this, at this very crucial time, uh, accusing God of forsaking him. Um, again, this is where, this is where Matthew's context, uh, really comes into play. Um, because I believe that Jesus is not having a, she's not suffering a crisis of faith. He's praying, and much like the genealogy that Matthew does, Matthew gives us this one line um, that, uh, that we may or may not recognize, but the Jew, Matthew's audience, definitely recognize, recognizes this as the opening line to the 22nd Psalm. And once again, just like the genealogy, uh, the way the genealogy works, that line is not just to, to remind them, oh, I, yeah, that's, that's from the psalm, but also to remind them of the whole psalm. And, and I would encourage you to, 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 when we're done, to maybe go and, and read the 22nd psalm. It's not very long, but it, it, it speaks to, it's not about, um, uh, it's not about someone who had, that God has forsaken. It's about someone, or, or it's, it's written uh, from the standpoint of, of someone who is in the, in the depths of despair uh, to where it may actually feel as though God has forsaken him. And yet by the end of the Psalm, he is rejoicing and praising God for God's faithfulness. Uh, that, that, that in fact, not only has God not abandoned him, but indeed that God has blessed him beyond measure, even in the moments of his deepest despair. And so again, that harkens back, you know, that harkens him back, not just to that one line, but to the whole Psalm um, that, that in this moment uh, of, of, you know, this, this moment of the worst despair in his life, Jesus is reminding himself once again, that God indeed has not forsaken him, has not abandoned him. Uh, and that, in, even in this moment that God will do amazing things through him. And then you also have uh, the, um, ba -ba 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 -ba. let's see, uh, verse, uh, verse 51 
uh, when, and again, Matthew is the only one who, who chronicles this, that when Jesus dies, when he breathes his last, he says that the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. Um, and, you know, and again, from, to the, to the faithful Jews, that was a huge statement, a huge, uh, um, uh, it, it was an image of great enormity. Um, the, the curtain that there, that he's referring to is the curtain that separated the outer sanctuary from what they call the Holy of Holies. Um, and, and bear in mind that, that the Jews, when the Jews looked at the temple and they considered the temple, it wasn't the same as when we, the way we think of our church. Yes, it was a place of worship, um, but it also was the place that God dwelled. That's where God was. They didn't have the sense that God was everywhere. God was in the temple, uh, which is why it was such a, such a huge blow theologically to them when the Babylonians destroyed the temple when the Romans destroyed the temple again in, in 70, but especially uh, when the Babylonians did, because not only did the temple get destroyed, but then they were hauled away from the land that God had promised them. So suddenly where is, how can God possibly be with us? Because God should be back there in Jerusalem. That's where God lives. That's where God dwells. And so this was a, a sacrosanct place, uh, this, this Holy of Holies. And, and only the chief priest was allowed to go in there. Um, and it didn't happen all that often. Uh, this, is the, this is the same thing, same place where in, in, uh, in Luke's gospel, where Zechariah has the encounter with the angel. He's, he's serving as the priest and goes into the Holy of Holies and, the, and, and essentially God through this angel speaks to him. And so it was, you know, no one but the chief priest went in there. Um, and so for that curtain to be torn in half, essentially exposing uh, God's dwelling place to the whole world, that barrier between heaven and earth is, is shattered. Um, it's a huge statement. And, and, and one that, uh, that they no doubt would have wrestled with. And so I think this is Matthew's uh, way of really driving home the, the point that, that, that in Jesus, the whole nature of how we relate to God is changing. And keep in mind, all this is before we even get to the resurrection. Um, that doesn't happen until the next chapter. Um, so, all right. So let me, let me stop there and, and again, invite you if you have thoughts or questions or comments or like I said, astute observation or downright silly observation. I have a question. Yes, ma'am. Something I had never looked at from this standpoint. Uh, in 51, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. But then 52 says the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Is that an ascension for uh, those that had already died? And how does that compare to the rapture? I think that is a reference to, or an allusion to um, the, their notion of resurrection. Oh, okay. Um, the, and, and again, this is something that was supposed to come or, or, or happen in conjunction with the coming of the Messiah, that the dead would be raised. Okay. Um, and, you know, whether, uh, whether you, whether you believe that you're, you know, you would be raised, uh, in the same body that you were in before, whether you would be young again, old, you know, whatever, um, that was a, that was a very much a topic of debate. Um, and in fact, not even all Jews believed in resurrection. Uh, that was actually one of the kind of one of the issues that divided the Sadducees and the Pharisees, um, was whether you believed in, in, in a day of resurrection, um, but no, they, their, their sense of resurrection had nothing to do with ascending, if you will, into heaven. Mm -hmm. um, they, didn't, they didn't really have a notion of, of heaven, uh, at least certainly not the way, the way that we understand it. 
<laughs> for you know, what little, how little we actually do understand it, excuse me, um, their notion of eternal life was the, the people um, enduring into the future. Okay. So, you know, basically when you die, you die. Um, and, and, you know, maybe on the day of resurrection, you might be raised, but they really didn't have the notion that when I die, I'm going to heaven, but eternal life was that my children and my children's children and my children's children's children, um, are going to continue to be, to be faithful to God in perpetuity. Okay. I had just never looked at that that way. And suddenly it jumped out at me. Yeah. All right. Well, just a, a little heads up. We're going to next week. We're going to look at Luke and, um, and probably, I don't know if we'll get to it next week. We'll, we'll dip a little bit into acts, uh, as well. Uh, only because Luke, uh, the, the same writer is believed to have written both Luke and acts. Um, and so we'll sort of, we're not gonna spend a lot of time in acts. Um, but, but just kind of look at a couple, couple places or a couple ways that, that, that portrait that Luke paints kind of bleeds over into acts and in, in terms of how the early church uh, interacts. So sound good. Sounds good. All right. Well, Hey, it's great to see all of you today. And, uh, thank you so much for being here and, uh, we will uh, look forward to seeing you again soon. All right. God bless you all. Bye. Thank you.